0: I did my research, I saw the best people, I took the newest drugs. Three years later, I'm in a tilt decline wheelchair. I, I take Mitoxanthrone, then I take Tizabri, I continue to decline, then I've switched to CELSEP. I And that's when I'm asking myself, am I really doing all that I can? And when I relive that moment, I, I still cry because that was when You know, the current understanding of secondary progressive MS is incomplete and, like, how much recovery might be possible.
1: Dr. Terry Walls, welcome to the MS Mindset.
0: Hey, thank you for having me.
1: Thank you so much. Thank you for, uh, for giving up some of your time. Um, appreciate you are very busy and you've got lots going on in the world of, uh, of, of MS. But um, yeah, how, how have things been going recently? How's, uh, how's life in the world of MS?
0: Well, you know, uh, really great. You know, this morning I uh, jogged on my treadmill uh, and so I, I've made so much progress personally. Yeah. And then uh, in the research world, you know, I've gone from being sort of crazy and dangerous to now being celebrated as uh, one of the very important uh, MS researchers.
1: Which is amazing. And, and I think I speak on behalf of, um, of the whole MS community, how grateful we are for the work that you've, um, that you've been doing. It's, it's fantastic. Um, for those that perhaps don't know your story, do you want to perhaps give a little bit of background yeah. in terms of how this all happened? Sure.
0: So, I'm an internal medicine physician. I was in practice uh, in 2000. I developed weakness in my left leg. I started stumbling. I uh, got a workup. Uh, we saw a lesion in my head, one in my spinal cord. Uh, and I was diagnosed with relapsing and multiple sclerosis. I did my research. I saw the best people. I took the newest drugs. Three years later, I'm in a tilt decline wheelchair. I, I take Mitoxandrone, then I take Tisabri, I continue to decline, then I've switched to Celsept. And that's what I'm asking myself, am I really doing all that I can? And I go back to reading the basic science. I decide that mitochondria are the drivers of disability. And I start creating a supplement cocktail for my mitochondria. The speed of my decline slows. I'm very, very grateful. I discover a study using... Uh, Electrical stimulation of muscles, I asked my physical therapist if we can add that to my rehab, uh, and we do. Then um, I I had this really big aha, Liam, and and now I'm sort of embarrassed uh, how long it took me to have this. (laughs) What if I redesigned my paleo diet that I've been following already for five years based on this long list of supplements? And so more research to figure out where those things are in the food supply, and I have this new way of eating. Uh, which I start December 26, 2007. Now for your listeners, I want you to know at that point, I'm so weak, I cannot sit up in a regular chair like I am now. I'm in a zero gravity chair with my knees higher than my nose. That's how I staff clinic with the residents. That's how I take my meals at home. I'm too weak, I can't go out uh, to the movies, I can't go to the restaurants. Uh, It's life, uh, is difficult. And my trigeminal neuralgia, which I've had for 27 years, and it's been getting relentlessly worse. um, You know, I'm very fearful that's going to turn permanently on, so that every sensory input is transmuted to this intense electrical pain. I'm beginning to have uh, some brain fog, so it's clear to me if I look back at the 27 years of worsening trigeminal neuralgia. Seven years of relentlessly worsening MS, then I'm headed towards becoming bedridden by my illness, possibly demented by my illness, and probably dying with intractable pain. That's 2007. A month into 2008, I realized that my energies improved, my mental clarity's improved. And my physical therapist says, Terry, you are stronger. I'm advancing your exercises. And I can start doing my little mat exercises twice a day, you know, 15 minutes twice a day, then 20 minutes, then 30 minutes. And then I start walking with two walking sticks, studying my colleagues. uh, And then I'm walking with one walking stick. And then no walking sticks. And then on Mother's Day, which is, you know, not even six months into this New program I'm doing. I decided I want to try riding my bike, I, and which I've not done in six years. We have an emergency family meeting. My wife Jackie tells my sixteen-year-old boy, Zach, who's six foot five, Zach, you run alongside on the left. <laughs> she tells my daughter, who's thirteen, you run alongside on the right, and she'll follow. And we get into position. She gives the all clear. I get on my bike. And I bike around the block. And that big 16 year old boy, he's crying. The 13 year old girl, she's crying. Jackie's crying. You know? And when I relive that moment, I, I still cry because that was when, I, you know, the current understanding of secondary progressive MS is incomplete. And like, how much recovery might be possible. And so I ride a little more every day. And then in October, Jackie says, honey, I've signed us up for the courage, Ride. It's 18.5 miles. However far you go, however far you go will be a triumph. And at that point, the farthest I'd gone was eight miles. But I crossed that finish line and you're all crying again. You know, my, my kids are crying. Jackie's crying. I'm crying. And this fundamentally changes how I think about disease and health. It will change the way I practice medicine, and it will change the focus of my research. And, and I've made it my mission to teach other clinicians how to do what I do and to teach the world. And, and I want all of your listeners to know if I can come back from such profound disability to where I could jog 20 minutes on my treadmill this morning, there's hope for you. Despite what your doctors tell you, there is hope for you
1: <laughs> exactly it 's such an inspiring story, I think particularly because as you 've already articulated the the severity of the disability had already taken its its grip on you and, and you were you know so so limited to be able to go from that to completing um, these incredible feats of, of, of you know, uh, big races or, or you know, um, even just getting on the bike again.
0: Just getting on the bike. Like, oh my yeah, God.
1: Getting that freedom back. It's, it must have been, yeah, I can see why it's still a, a very emotional I still cry. moment to relive. Yeah, I, I completely get why, because it, it's just, just an incredible turnaround and, and something that's come from, not from a doctor's office, telling you to take this tablet, take this tablet or this drug, more about going back to basics and studying the things that you're consuming, putting into your body. You you mentioned there that was there a link there then initially from the vitamins you you were taking supplements you were taking, you thought, okay, there might, might might've been an effect here. What if I,
0: yeah, the, the the, the supplements when I, you know, in 2004 when I got in the wheelchair, like life's, you know, pretty grim, Uh, but I'm a doc, like, okay. Am I really doing everything that I can? You know, I'm still mentally clear I should be reading the basic science. And I started experimenting, you know, and six months into this land, I'm, you know, I'm taking, you know, some B vitamins, Coenzyme Q, and and I'm like, I'm wasting my money. So I quit the yeah. walk. And I couldn't get out of bed. Uh, three days later, you know, my wife s- comes in and says, you know, honey, what? why you, don't why'd you take these again? So I took them, and the down next, down morning, down. next morning, next I was like, I can get up and go to work. And I thought, wow, that that's really interesting. Yeah. So two weeks later, I stop everything again, and I wait three days, and I'm getting worse every day. <laughs> and on the third day, I, I take, take them again, and the next morning, I can get up and go to work. And I think, okay, I'm figuring stuff out that my docs don't know. And so now I am super excited about reading the basic science. I am super excited. And and by by now, I'm on the um, institutional review board, which means I'm part of the committee that reviews uh, clinical research. And so I tell that group, give me everything related to the brain. All your neurology, all your psychiatry studies, I want to read them. And review them. And I'm getting better and more comfortable at reading the, the, the uh, clinical trials, the basic science, and I'm getting way more comfortable at experimenting on myself. Yeah. So, I'm, so I'm doing all sorts of interesting things. So when I, when I saw that study and I reviewed that study using electrical stimulation of muscles and people were paralyzed, we're never going to walk. I thought, wow, this is really interesting. And convinced my physical therapist to let me have a test session, which by the way, hurt like hell. But yeah. <laughs> when it was over, I felt really, really great. It was clearly doing something to my mood, I, and um, my physical therapist said, "You know, it's probably the endorphin release." Uh, and so we added it, and you know, said so I could take as much current as I could tolerate, pain-wise. And it it always hurt a lot, but always felt really, really good afterwards in terms of my mood. I, and so uh, that just got me very uh, excited about what might be possible.
1: Yeah, I guess there's no greater incentive than you're actually feeling the effects of the things you're doing. I guess with a lot of clinical yeah. trials, it's a case of, you know, test, it, study, look at the data, test, study, then repeat. Whereas actually you're feeling the benefit immediately. I,
0: Yeah, you know, and and now I I continue to read uh, the research about electrical stimulation of muscles. And we we know a lot more now than we knew in 2007 when I first started doing this. We know that it uh, causes a release of something called myokines uh, in the muscles that helps the muscles grow bigger, stronger, more muscle mass. Um, Very helpful. It also releases neurotransmitters in the brain, and it releases nerve growth factors in the brain, and a lot of endorphins. So, uh, and um, people report cognitive improvement, improvement uh, in mood, uh, and, um, I, 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 and you know, and I still do uh, Eastem about an hour a day because I really appreciate what it does to my mood uh and uh i mean it 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 is yeah i dial it right up it's pretty uncomfortable (laughs) for that hour
1: yeah no pain Um, no gain literally
0: (laughs) yeah you know i'm like oh my god but i feel so good afterwards like okay i'm very happy to do it
1: now are these things perhaps that you feel more benefit from because of how your MS had progressed? Or do you think these are things that anybody who has, like I have weakness in my legs. I get um, like an electric sort of shock sensation in my leg, roughly every 15 seconds all day, every day. But I'm obviously able to, on a good day, walk for long, long distances, bad days, well, perhaps not so much, but what would the benefit that I would see perhaps in, okay. in doing that?
0: So uh, I'm going to put this in the context of our first our athletes, the athletes, Began using electrical stimulation of muscles uh, probably 30 years ago, uh, and these were strength athletes, uh, so uh, wrestlers, sprinters, sprint runners, sprint swimmers, people who need a lot of muscle strength. Yeah. because uh, This gives them a uh, tremendous athletic uh, advantage. Bodybuilders then started using it. Then athletes who had injuries, and in they're trying to recover from their injury more quickly, or to prevent... Muscle atrophy if they're in a cast and, and uh, have to be mobilized. So the athletes started using it. Then we started uh, giving it to stroke patients to recover from stroke more quickly. Uh, and then the spinal cord injury folks started doing using it to reduce the harm of inactivity to their muscles, to their bones, to their blood sugar regulation, to their uh, blood cholesterol regulation. And that was the study that I saw, like, okay, wait a minute. Maybe that might help me. Uh, and then I started studying it in others with uh, MS. So now we have some other scientists like me who study it in people who are severely disabled, can't, can't move a whole lot. It really helps reduce the harm of inactivity. Yeah. And it slowly strengthens their muscles. So, that, in fact, they have more power. In those muscle groups. Yeah. They so say, give So so history. so uh, Let's we'll take you, Liam. So uh, I am hearing a guy who still fairly mobile has some limitations. If you're having uh, spasm issues, uh, electrical stimulation muscles reduces the spasms because part of the spasms is, is in response to developing muscle weakness. So okay. I, if you were my patient, I would say let's do that because I think it will reduce your spasms. And then, um, because I uh, I really uh, am a big believer in strong muscles for everybody, because yeah. muscles are a endocrine organ that help us regulate our blood sugar, our blood cholesterol, uh, and our general level of inflammation. So I want everyone to have you know a, a, a good amount of muscle on them. So in fact, I'd be telling you, you know what, Liam, if you're if you're willing to do it, let's have you strength train. And superpower the strength training by doing electrical stimulation as you strength train. Wow. Uh, and so when you have the uh, current going, uh, you ha- you do the volitional contraction of the muscle, and then during re- during the no current, you relax the muscle, and then the current comes back, and you do the volitional contraction. Uh, and I tell you, you dial it up. To the level of discomfort that you feel like. And so some people want just a little discomfort, and some of us are overachievers. We're going to, you know, <laughs> we're going to take, we're going to dial it all the way up. And our friends will say, like, oh my God, you know, I, you know, I see tears in your eyes. Like, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, it hurts so good.
1: Yeah, that's so good. I like that. Yeah. yeah. And I imagine as well, the more you do it, the more strength your muscles yeah. sort of build. Therefore, the more you can perhaps tolerate.
0: And the more you can tolerate. The longer you do the electrical current, the more you can tolerate it. Uh, and so uh, and I've done this for years, so I can tolerate the current that is at the maximum of the FDA allowable current that you can have. Yeah. Um, but it, it takes a while to get to that. It, and it takes a while. Uh, probably your brain is able to reinterpret those signals. So they they aren't as yeah. painful. If uh, I hooked you up to the level of current that I take now, you yeah. know, you would never forgive me.
1: It would no, be yeah, really torturous,
0: <laughs> wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it would be really, really bad. Now, the other thing I want people to know is when, when you're when you're strength training, whether you're a uh, bodybuilding athlete or your limb or uh, Doctor Walls, what we're doing is we're damaging our muscle. Yeah, and the immune cells some come in and say, "Okay, we're going to clean up that damage, and then we're going to call in the building blocks and make a stronger muscle cell." So you have to have enough recovery time hmm. after that damage before you damage them again. Yeah. So that would mean the bodybuilders would train, you know, at, at, allow at least 36, 48 hours between strength training sessions. Yeah. So you might do your arms today, and then maybe I do my butt tomorrow. Yeah. and then maybe my core the next day, and then I come back to my arms. Yeah. So when I'm doing my electrical current, I'm migrating uh, body parts. I don't zap the same part every day.
1: Right. Well, that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, ironically, I, I I had been doing quite a lot of strength training at the gym prior to my diagnosis. Um, I used to be quite, quite a sort of skinny, slight build, and then I, I built to, to quite a sort of, uh, I would say a reasonable sort of, Look, I looked like I went to the gym, I think, would, would be the best way to do okay, it. Absolute, well, I was never a, a massive bodybuilder. Um, but yeah, I got very used to, you know, Monday might be chest day, Thursday would be arms and back or whatever it might be. And, yeah, and, yeah. and understanding that I'm aching and hurting because I have done damage to my muscles and they need to repair. And that's why I would then look to things like, well, that's why a lot of bodybuilders will have things like protein shakes afterwards because yeah. those protein help repair the muscles faster. And that goes back to your you're saying about about diet, that actually the food we 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 consume is so important. Absolutely.
0: The food we eat becomes the body and brain I have tomorrow. So if I want a good body and brain, I got to have good food. If I want a junk body and brain, (laughs) I eat junk food.
1: Yeah, you are what you eat.
0: You are what you eat.
1: Yeah, fantastic. No, it it makes a lot of sense. And that's what I I think is so, um, I guess, so easy to understand or approachable about, Discussing things like this is because it's not necessarily tons of science or or complicated yeah. theories thrown at you it, it's it is basics it is looking yeah. at what you eat and how it impacts your body
0: it's what our great grandmothers knew yeah you know that you, you got to eat good food yeah uh, and that it'll it make clear that there are many versions of good foods, our ancestors uh, if you go back far enough, we all emigrated out of equatorial Africa yeah. into a wide variety of ecosystems around the world. Yeah. So humans, and- we've had um, reproductive success in the Arctic, in the subarctic, in the temperate zones, in the subtropics, and the tropics, in forests, in deserts, in grasslands, eating a wide variety of foods in each ecosystem. Mm-hmm. There's one diet that we know will wreck our health. And that's the westernized diet that has a lot of added sugars, a lot of processed white flours um, that has a lot of emulsifiers and additives and food-like compounds. That diet is delicious, it's cheap, it's affordable, it's addicting, and it's wrecking our health.
1: No, that's right. And, uh, am I right in thinking as well that there's quite a sort of turning point in that change of diet? Was um, was it during slash after the Second World War when we were yeah. so much more dependent on grain and things like that? There was it was easy to grow. You know, we could do a lot with it.
0: So we can sort of think, you know, for millions of years we ate some meat, leaves, tubers, berries, a lot of dirt. And then, you know, 10,000 years ago, we we cultivated grain, legumes, and dairy. 300 years ago, we learned how to make white flour and white sugar. World War II, we learned how to process our food and have shelf-stable food to conduct World War II. And at the end of World War II, the processed food industry was born. And we steadily began to outsource our cooking. We eat more uh, restaurant meals. We eat more meals from boxes, jars yeah. and cans that we just warm up. Mm-hmm. And we don't make we don't make much food from ingredients anymore.
1: No. We don't cook as many we meals, rather make a lot of meals. Construct we, we, a lot of meals.
0: Oh, we okay. don't we, we warm up food that someone else made. Um, uh, from a box or a jar or a can, or we go out to a restaurant. Not many of us know how to shop, meal plan, and to make a, a food using a recipe that you know ca- calls for vegetables, poultry, fish, meat, uh, uh, some spices. People don't know how to do that. No, it, it's shocking.
1: Yeah, it's, I suppose we we eat more for convenience or a little treat now rather than fuel for the body. I need to you know put the good things in so that I can do more tomorrow. It's it's more about uh, it's it's tea, tea time. It's you know I need to make some food. I'll shove something in and then I can and then it's done. It's it's not looking at yeah. what's going in. Um,
0: and we've been uh, conditioned with uh, here. Uh, many, many folks use Saturday morning uh, uh, cartoons as marketing to convince uh, children to eat all this uh, uh, candied uh, cereal for for breakfast and to get all these snack foods, treats, uh, and, you know, really make the uh, family's diets get worse and worse and worse and worse.
1: Yeah. You become into that cycle then of of craving those foods and um, you know that ease of of, of obtaining them. I, think, I guess it's, it's when you look at it from a different perspective, or you look back, it, it's it's quite obvious how it's how it's come to this to be this way. And and trying to break that mindset and and go back to the basics is um, you know, for a lot of people. It's just it just won't happen.
0: It it, um, it is hard. It, yeah. It's it's always hard for any of us to create new habits. And to break uh, destructive habits, but whether it's with how we spend our money, spend our time, uh, 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 exercise, um, or in this case, feed our bodies.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to ask you more about your um, your clinical research and the things that you've got going on at the moment. Yeah. But bef- before I do, and um, I know we've touched on it a, a little bit already, but I just wanted to, to ask you, So I've always wondered really, what was it like, I guess, to, to receive that MS diagnosis as a, um, someone working in the medical field, yeah. you know, you're, you're there, you know, you've got into the industry to help people, to help people get better, to look after people. And here you are with a life-changing disease that is escalating at a rapid pace. What, what was that like?
0: You know, when I first got the diagnosis, that was, um, I could look go into my own medical record, look at the results uh, before there're any bar- barriers up to prevent <laughs> people yeah. from doing that. And so I kept going back and recheck the results uh, multiple times, somehow wanting them to magically change, but of course, yeah. they never did. Uh, and then I go to PubMed and I start reading the basic science or you know the uh, papers about that, and I see that it's a progressive disease. And that you know, within ten years, uh, most people are, are not working. Yeah. I, and, um, you know, it's very upsetting. I'm just getting more and more upset because I, I see how uh, progressive this is. And that's when my wife sits me down and says, Terry, you have to stop reading. We'll we'll find the very best MS center in the country. We'll go there, let them take care of you. But promise you, you're going to stop reading because it's just getting you upset. Yeah. So I did. And then when I got in the wheelchair, I said, honey, we know how bad it's going to be. It's really bad. I'm going back to reading.
1: Yeah. (laughs) And
0: and so as it turned out, you know, that, that worked out because uh, then when I started reading and and started experimenting, um, then I felt like, okay, at least I'm doing something.
1: Yeah. I think that's probably a big struggle for a lot of people, isn't it? Because when you get, you know, if you receive that diagnosis, you don't, you don't feel like there's anything you can do because there's not, I think particularly whether it may be just in this country or not, I don't know. But in terms of debilitating life-changing disease and illness, MS is one that even now there's not that much awareness of to the general public, unless it affects your life already somehow, unless you know someone who has MS.
0: Correct. Uh, And we don't know. And what the physician will tell you is um, it's a progressive disease. You end up in a wheelchair. You got to take these drugs. Yeah. And that's sort of the, the three messages that you'll hear. Yeah. Um, fortunately, we're beginning to have more neurologists say, but there's, there are things that you can be doing and you need to do them. Um, when I was diagnosed, it was, it's progressive. Uh, take the drugs. Uh, you'll end up in a wheelchair uh, if you don't. Know. Yeah. And then and the drugs slow the time to wheelchair. and they slow the time by five years well that's that's still worth a lot
1: oh yeah definitely
0: that's definitely worth a lot yeah Uh, but we need to tell people that drugs are not enough
1: yeah and we're not saying don't take the drugs we're not saying drugs aren't helpful it's 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 they're just not the be all and end all. There's things you have to do alongside every day that you right. can do and take control and give you, give you that sense of control.
0: Right. I mean, I think we all have to evaluate the risk of disability progression versus the risk from the drugs. And, and the drugs that I took, I mean, I, I took very potent drugs that when you look at the package insert, it was 2% risk of acute leukemia each time you took them. And I don't remember what the uh, risk was for uh, damage to your heart and heart failure each time you took them, but I was willing to take them because you know I could still use my hands, I could still feed myself, I could still wipe my own butt, and that was really very you know very useful yeah. to me. Yeah. I, uh, and so I was like, okay, I I was more afraid of worsening disability than of uh, the side effects of the drugs. That's a deeply personal decision that we all have to make. What I hope everyone who's listening can realize is vegetables are pretty safe. Protein is pretty safe. Healthy fats like olive oil, fish oil, those, that's pretty safe. Meditation, that's safe. Exercise, you have to, you know, be careful, you know, get someone. Hopefully you'll ask for a physical therapy referral so they can help you design an exercise program to address your weaknesses. Uh, and help you do things that you enjoy all those things i think are safe and you can ask your specialist or your primary care to a referral to help you with your diet for occupational therapy for referral to help you with a stress management program because if your neurologist won't your primary care should yeah
1: absolutely I think you've you've touched on something there that which has been uh, a, a topic that i've I've tend to have have kind of ended up um, in a discussion with, with with most of the people that I've spoke with um, already and that is around stress because f- from the conversations I've had and particularly in my own um sort of story, I really feel that it was at an incredibly stressful time in my life mm-hmm. where I noticed all these symptoms start to flare yeah. up and start to become you know noticeable to me so what, what is your view then of, of stress yeah. and how it affects multiple sclerosis, whether it be the revealing of symptoms that are underlying or perhaps a cause of multiple sclerosis in the first place?
0: In my clinical research and in my clinical practice and in my own personal life, what I see is in the 24 months prior to diagnosis, there's usually severe stress, whether it is a psychological stress at work at home, it might be a severe physical stress with an accident or a major surgery that happened, but there's severe physical or psychological stress that accelerates the autoimmune process that leads to worsening symptoms that lead to the diagnosis. We also know that people with MS and other neuroimmune conditions, we are very much We have a much higher rate of early life stress, that is adverse childhood experiences, than people who don't have MS or neuroimmune conditions. Right. And, you know, I can look at my own life. Um, When I was nine, uh, my sister died. Uh, And that was very difficult for my family. Uh, And, you know, my family never uh, fully recovered from the pain of that loss it wasn't until I was doing clinical research and I saw this extraordinary level of early life stress in all of my participants that I thought back and realized, well, I too had severe early life stress. Yeah, uh, And so, so now I, I talk about this with my patients. And uh, I also talk about what was the severe psychological or physical stress that you might have had in the uh, prior to 24 months wow. and i've yet to meet someone who says they didn't have
1: it yeah no i was i was skipping along the beach for two years and then all of a sudden no there's always some things in there um and i guess that that goes to show i think the way that our bodies deal with stress particularly if we don't deal with it if we if we if we're not the type to um open and discuss our stresses our worries our concerns I think particularly in men you know we see the, that sort of stiff upper lip we don't want to talk about our feelings we'll keep it to ourselves the body has to do something with it and therefore mm-hmm. you know pushes it down buries it away and your immune system goes well I have to do something with this and that's yeah. when you know problems can yeah. occur so our,
0: our cortisol levels uh, go up or the time of cortisol is disrupted uh, it can disrupt our sleep It will um, overly activate the microglia, that is the immune cells in the brain, and that will lead to problems with our ability to repair the myelin. Uh, uh, Because our our bodies and our brains have wear and tear as part of living, which we should be able to repair. If our microglia, that is our immune cells, are shifted over into that reactive state, they uh, can't re- uh, do the repairs. Yeah. And when you can't do the repairs, that's when, you know, we're, we're going to have those relapses, that's when we're going to have those enhancing lesions, that's when we're going to become symptomatic. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's why I think it, yeah, it, it always circles back, doesn't it, to – you know, our body has to do so many weird and wonderful things. We have to create a, a, a hospitable canvas for it, I guess, to be able to do the things it needs to do. And the only way we can do that is is um, is, is through our diet. Um, I read a, a study recently, or well, I've I've seen that there's been some sort of uh, research into the effect of um, the the damaged myelin, as opposed, well, the the reaction to you you having damaged myelin. Versus the fact that you have damaged myelin staying in the system, is that something you've read much much well, on the moment?
0: So if you have damaged myelin, that inhibits the repair. You have to get the damaged myelin out of the way. Uh, and so uh, there are a number of uh, signals that are we call inhibitory signals. and we know that you have more of these inhibitory signals. If you have severe mental health issues, anxiety, depression, uh, uh, schizophrenia, uh, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and multiple sclerosis, okay. when when we damage your myelin, our immune cells, the microglia, have to come in and they uh, organize the wrecking crew that will come in and eat up the debris. Yeah. And you got to get all the debris eaten up. You have to have a clean. Bed on which to begin the repair process. Yeah. If you uh, and so the the microglia have to be able to supervise the um, wrecking crew before they can call in the rebuilding crew. Yeah. And we know that for whatever reason, um, we get stuck in the wrecking crew phase for the MS, and we don't get get a good job of calling in the the contract the general contractor yeah. to come yeah. and do the repair work
1: yeah so it's like an analogy i guess as well of if you were to have a, a a filling or a crown at the dentist you know the dentist is going to drill out all the all um, oh, the, 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 the the decay and the rubbish the crap get rid of that before they cover that up and protect it and there's no reason to cover it up if if all the bad things are still inside
0: Right. And if you do cover it up with the bad things inside, you're going to get an abscess and you'll have yeah. one, a, a much worse problem. Yeah,
1: exactly. Exactly. Um, it's great to to see that there's, uh, you know, uh, you touched on the fact that when, when you were diagnosed, the, um, there wasn't as much um, understanding or as much understanding. Um, there weren't as many drugs available on the market at the time. Uh, we're seeing mm-hmm. more and more sort of advancements in treatment and understanding of MS Um, Mm -hmm. and you're you are now um, conducting some more uh, clinical research and trials yourself so do you want to just tell us a little bit more about what they are and how they're going
0: so uh, we're to our eighth clinical trial right now we're comparing a ketogenic diet uh, to a paleo diet to usual diet people will come to Iowa at month zero month three and month 24 Uh, we'll get uh, measures of walking hand vision thinking uh, measures of fatigue quality of life and we're doing a research mri so no contrast uh, but we'll get that at baseline and at the end of the study month 24 and that will let us see what's happening to brain volume and spinal cord volume Uh, it's my, my hypothesis what i'm testing is Can, by teaching people how to improve their diet, can we get them back to healthy rates of brain volume loss? Because, Liam, and and this should uh, worry all of us who have MS, as a group, our brain is shrinking 1% per year, which is why we have higher rates of frailty uh, and nursing home care uh, uh, and um, uh, uh, dementia. Wow. In my clinical practice, what I see is anxiety goes away, depression goes away, uh, brain fog goes away. So I am very hopeful that people in the intervention groups will get to healthy rates of brain aging. And because we are giving tips on how to improve your diet to my control arm, and I expect most of them to actually improve their diets as well, I think the control arm is going to improve their diet. Uh, and probably have uh, better uh, brain volume. Yeah. And what I want people to know is the, the drugs do a great job of turning off relapses and reducing the number of enhancing lesions. They don't do very good with anxiety, depression, or brain fog, or uh, brain volume loss. They they haven't solved that problem. I think to solve that problem, you got to fix your diet. Yeah, and that's what we're going to be uh, addressing.
1: That's amazing. How do um, sort of diet studies differ to a, a, yeah. a typical drug study?
0: Yeah, so if I'm in a drug study, neither the participant nor the investigators know in group A or group B who has the active ingredient, who has the placebo. In a diet study. The People know what they're eating, so they know they're in intervention arm or they're in the usual diet arm, right. which means – uh, and I and I have to spend a lot of time with all my participants to let them know that yeah. they're, we're all in a sacred mission. The intervention arm is a sacred mission. They're going to be changing their diet. The control arm, they're in a sacred mission because they're the comparison group. And – Yes, I, I understand the control group, they're disappointed to be in the control group. Yeah. Um, we have to do, give them a lot of love uh, because <laughs> yeah. what they're doing is, is really vital as well. Yeah. In the intervention arm, we're asking them to eat new foods, new recipes, new ingredients, new shopping patterns. Sometimes they have to learn how to cook. They've never cooked before. They've never shopped. They haven't meal planned before. So there's a lot of stuff they have to learn. And we are ask, we're letting them know that if the whole family eats the same way, it will be easier. Because you want the person eating, their eating environment to be supportive. Yeah. If I'm asking them to eat these new foods, but the old tempting foods are still there in front of them, yeah. you're asking a lot for them to not eat that delicious food that's so terrible for them that yeah. tastes so delicious
1: yeah and they've potentially over a period of time become quite used to having and, and they're used and to crave. having
0: their, they crave they're addictive I, I know we warn them but when you give up these addictive foods the first two weeks you'll probably have headaches uh, some body aches uh, uh, and that generally diminishes over the first week is generally gone by the end of the second week but we warn people about that that yeah that's
1: a thing, uh, and it's a real thing. Yeah, and like you said, it's like the greater good, isn't it? You're doing something for for science and for your fellow MS warriors to you know to to, to try to and understand out. more about this. Yeah, correct, correct. Do Do you find that uh, obviously you've? You, it's hard that in some drug tests you would have like a placebo, wouldn't you? Like you said, um, so. Yes. Uh, when you're eating food and you're told what to eat, you know which group you are or which you're not. Um, so with MS studies, particularly with diet, it, it is different to other sorts of studies. Have you ever found that there's almost like a, a conflict of interests from, from uh, your own yeah. perspective?
0: So, uh, so everyone's worried that, Oh my God, I can't do these studies fairly because you know, I've created the Wallace diet. So we have uh, a lot of safeguards in place. Uh, the university has a conflict of interest, uh, uh, I don't do the consenting. Um, I don't have contact with people uh, uh, teaching them uh, the diet. I don't have any contact with the data. We have a statistician who's going to analyze the data who doesn't know group assignments. So he's, he, he will get uh, the data, group one, two, and three. He'll do all the analyses. He will write a report to the data safety monitoring board and to the University of Iowa Conference Mentors Committee saying this is what we found yeah. and he'll be on all of our manuscripts. So in fact, you know, this is as rigorous as you can be with yeah. any clinical trial. And, and, and I would make the same observation that when we design new drugs, um, that investigator is doing the first clinical trials. And so... The universities that are part of those studies, all we all have conflict of interest uh, committees that make sure that we use these kinds of processes. So you have an independent statistician doing the analysis to say, yes, everything was done correctly in these other findings.
1: Yeah. So even though it's it's a, a, a dietary study rather than a drug study uh, or, or trial, it's still following that same rigorous process yes, that, that you'd have to for any drug to be approved. It's still going through, uh, from a science perspective, in terms of a fair experiment, isn't it? That's, that's you know, fair experiment. I mean anything unless it's not a fair experiment. Yeah.
0: And, you know, and, we, and because we are trying to help the control diet improve their diet, I may see that all three groups are improving. So we, we do have a contingency plan uh, in terms of historical controls uh, from drug trials uh, that had uh, um, MRI studies uh, to know what happens if you if you don't take drugs, a uh, placebo arm, mm. and usual care, what happens to brain volume? So we'll be able to have that as uh, another control. Yeah.
1: Oh, fantastic! It's really exciting to see to see how it goes. I'm, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing how the uh, how the study continues, and, and I'm sure you'll be sharing um, a lot of that on your um, on your social media platforms well, as well, which I'll, I'll be linking.
0: I'll I'll be letting everyone know who's had me on a podcast before to bring me back so we can talk about that. You know, and, and I should also make clear that when you screen for our study, uh, you you we ask you if you want to be in our patient database because we do survey-based only trials as well. Uh, uh, And and these are um, uh, studies where that people could participate in from anywhere in the world. So Mm -hmm. uh, we're trying to grow that database to to over 10,000 people.
1: Amazing. Getting close. This is is something that people listening to this podcast or who are following on social media can get involved with you've you've kindly sent a link over. Um, so yes. that's something that I'll be able to share. So if, if there is anyone who's interested and wants to find out more and potentially get involved with the study, whether it's, you know, yeah. flying to Iowa or just sending an email or, you know, doing it remotely, it is yeah. possible.
0: There there are things that we do that can be done remotely there. Are, um, and for this trial, you're going to have to come to Iowa and you can learn more about the study at com forward slash ms study uh but even if you don't want to come to iowa i encourage you to complete the screening so you can be part of our database for other survey-based studies that we'll do yeah
1: so yeah even if you're not a part of it the data is so valuable uh, that you know we, as much as we can get hold of is yeah imperative that's incredible And like i said to see the correlation between a dietary study and a drug study i think is is um is great and 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 so so wanted that that there isn't just a focus on on drugs but um touching on on drugs do you think there will ever be something uh, whether it be a, a food group or a, a drug that comes to market that can perhaps look to repair myelin you know that's been damaged
0: so you know we have uh, a a bunch of drugs that work really well in mice yep. and in rodents and then when they try them in people either a very tiny uh, effect or no effect at all. And I think the reason for that is when you do these mouse and rat experiments, we control the diet very carefully. We control light very carefully. We control exercise very carefully. When we do these studies in people, we get to eat what we want. We get to have fights with our spouses uh, or at work. We uh, exercise or not. We go out on, uh, we drink a lot of alcohol or not. We smoke or not. And so there are too many other variables. Yeah. Well, we, we are writing uh, proposals. Um, uh, you know, actually, uh, there's a, 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 another proposal uh, that we're sending back. Uh, and, and let me describe it. This is a stopping study where so people on disease modifying drugs after the age of 50, 55, they, you don't have many more relapses. So could you just stop the drugs safely or not? Uh, and there are some studies going on trying to answer that question. None of those studies have controlled for diet or exercise or stress reduction or tobacco use. We're writing uh, – we didn't get funded last time. We're trying again. We're writing a stopping study where we put everyone on a paleo diet, give them an exercise program for three months, get get them all good on their diet and their exercise, and then we'll randomize. So half stay on the drug, half go off. And we follow them for 18 months and we see how it goes. And what I predict is, you know what, if we get you eating well, exercising well, we can safely take you off your drugs over the age of 55. Now um, we'll see if I can get the NIH to fund me this time around. So we'll we'll keep trying uh, and I'm hopeful that we will ultimately get funded for that study.
1: Uh, yeah, I really hope we do as well and, and good luck with it. I think, um, like I said, it's really important work and just goes to show that, you know, diet as well is something that sits alongside all these other studies. It can help almost every every aspects of of, um, of the disease, whether it be drugs or not, or or coming off drugs or never having, having had them in right. the first place.
0: You know, the food we eat will either accelerate our disease or accelerate our healing. Yeah. Depending on the choices we make.
1: No, and like it goes back to what we said at the start as well, being able to do something now, if you are suffering, if you feel that your disease is progressing or worsening, there are things that you can be doing, um, you know, regardless of whether you're part way through or finished a study, changing your diet and eating better is going to be a good thing. So it's going to be helpful. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, brilliant. Um, there's a couple of questions that I've, um, I've been asking, um, the, the, the guests that I've been speaking with, um. And they've had some really great answers. I was wondering if I could ask them to you uh, as well. Mm-hmm. They're, very, sort of, they're very similar questions, but from a slightly different take. Um, the first one would be, what, what would you say to yourself if you could go back in time to the, the moment or the time period where you were first diagnosed? What would you, what would you say to
0: that person years ago? Yeah. Keep reading and experiment on yourself. Pay attention to what's making you feel better and what made you feel worse.
1: Amazing. Absolutely. Right. I I love that. It's, it's almost that the, 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 the vision, I guess, of you experimenting on yourselves. I've got all these sort of images in my head of your, a big lab (laughs) in your basement and (laughs) some sort of nutty professor type, uh, type scenario. My my kids call me the nutty professor.
0: Yeah.
1: Great. Uh, and, and lastly, again, a very similar question, but f- from a different perspective, what advice would you give to someone who's listening right now who has just been diagnosed? So someone who's just received that horrible diagnosis, they don't know any of the work you've done, you know, don't know any of the, the drugs available, what What would be your advice there?
0: Uh, well, a couple of things. I pick up my book, The Walls Protocol, because it will inspire hope that there's a lot that you can do. It's not just food. There are many things from which you can choose. And then follow me on Instagram uh, at Dr. Terry Walls, uh, because you get to see what I'm eating and doing. uh, And I think uh, you'll laugh. Um, uh, Plus uh, it's just really uh, lots and lots of fun.
1: Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Like I said, I think that just reiterates, doesn't it, that, that, Whilst you might not feel it at the time, there is a lot of support and inspiration mm-hmm. available. And whilst we can bury our heads and, and feel really sort of consumed by, by a diagnosis, there is hope out there. And there are things that we can be doing to, to sort of help ourselves live a, a better life with multiple sclerosis.
0: We can have a great life. Absolutely. You can have a great life. You can be a mom, you can be a dad, you can keep working. You can uh, uh, play with your children and your grandchildren. Yeah. you can get the on the future the future is bright
1: yeah oh fantastic i think that's a great message to to end on as well um what i will do is i will leave links in the description um and any of the posts to your website um your social media uh, as well as information about the the trials that you're conducting at the moment should anybody um want to uh want to get involved but just want to thank you again for not only joining me on the podcast but for all the work you're doing because there's a huge army of people behind you that are supporting you and and, and wishing you well so so thank you um thank you for everything that you're doing uh, dr walls
0: much love to you and your family as well
1: thank you uh, if you enjoyed today's episode of the ms mindset don't forget to hit the like button and hit subscribe and i look forward to seeing you in the next episode